Well, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the most significant event in the history of mankind, it's God in the form of man coming to earth in Jesus Christ. He lived a perfect life so that we could see. He died on the cross so that sins could be forgiven. Jesus said, I'm going to give my life up. I'm going to allow people to take it from me, and then I'm going to rise up again on the third day because I want everybody around to know that I am who I say that I am, the Son of God, God incarnate. Three days later, after he's crucified on the cross, three days later, he rises again. And then he goes and he meets with his devout followers who had abandoned him. And then for the next 40 days, he is literally meeting with over hundreds of peoples, hundreds of people in groups where he says, here I am, see, feel, touch, hear, know. And then on the 40th day, he ascends into heaven just as he said he would do. History is now split by B.C. and A.D. before Christ, in the year of our Lord. It's throughout history. For 2,000 years, we've been celebrating that. For, for uh, all across the world, people are going to be celebrating yesterday and today the resurrection. But it's interesting, many of them are really unaware of the power of what this holiday brings. I want to talk a little bit about that today. I want to take kind of an obscure passage and a, a, a scripture that, that I've really never thought about until this last season when we thought about how we wanted to theme Easter. So if you would take your Bibles or your phone app or whatever you use and turn or just follow along and uh, turn, if you would, to John chapter 20. We're going to pick it up in verse 19. John chapter 20, verse 19. Could you turn me down just a little bit, please? Thank you. In the evening of the first day of the week, the disciples were gathered together with the doors locked because of their fear of the Jews. Why were they fearful of the Jews? Well, because it was the Jews that had this kind of uh, movement against Jesus Christ at the end that led him to be crucified. So they're thinking, well, if Jesus is going to get it, we're next on the hit list. Well, then Jesus came and he stood among them and he said to them, peace to you. Now imagine that they make a point that the doors are locked because Jesus just suddenly appears. It doesn't say he knocked. He's in a resurrected body now. It doesn't say that he rang the doorbell. He just shows up. And so his first words are nice, peace be with you, which would be helpful, don't you think? So having said this, Jesus showed them his hands and his side. He says, I want you to know it's me. I want you to see. And I think that's a powerful point for any skeptic today because he's going to do the same thing with the disciple Thomas in just a little later in this narrative. So the disciples, they rejoiced when they saw the Lord Jesus. Verse 21, and Jesus said to them again for the third time, peace to you. And now he's commissioning them, and he says, as the Father sent me, I also send you. And after saying this, he does this unique thing. He goes, Whew. says he breathed on them. And he says, receive the Holy Spirit, and if you forgive the sins of any, they will, they will be forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Breathing. We kind of take that for granted, don't we? I mean, we just wake up, we're breathing. We're sitting here, we're breathing. Breath is an interesting thing. It's a powerful, it's a wonderful thing. Eh, it can probably be bad sometimes. What bothers you more? 
when it comes to bad breath? Is it onion breath? Is it garlic breath? Is it morning breath? Is it salsa breath? What, what kind of, what, you know, what, what bothers? Have you ever done this? A little truth, truth or dare or true confession type. Have you ever gone like this? Breath is important. Sorry about that little sidebar. Um, breath is important. We breathe a lot. Just for a second, just, just do this real quick. Take in a, an inhale deeply and then exhale slowly. You know what to breathe means? It means you're alive. It means you're alive. And I don't want to sound morbid, but we all, only, well, all of us, everyone in this room only has a certain amount of breaths left. I did some calculations. On the average, a person at rest takes about 16 breaths an hour, which equates to about 23,000 breaths a day, about 8.5 million a year. Now, obviously, if you get a lot of exercise, that'll go up. If you don't exercise at all, except going to the refrigerator, that'll go down. Now, the person who lives to be 80, they will take in close to 7 million breaths in their lifetime. That is a lot of breaths that your lung is working. Now, Jesus lived, we believed, anywhere to between 33 and probably 36 years. So if that's true, somewhere in that time frame, Jesus probably took about 300 million breaths. But there's one significant breath that I really want to look at today that I want us to think about. Now, if you look at the breath of God, it's throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, think of Jesus' last breath. Luke 23, 46 says this, And Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. And saying this, he breathed his last. That was Good Friday. He's on the cross. He's being crucified. And Jesus breathed his last breath, last breath on the cross because he died for the sins of the world, for you and for me. See, a lot of people say the reason Jesus was able to stay on the cross is because of the nails. I don't know if I agree with that. Well, that was very helpful, I really believe that he stayed there because of his love for you and me. Because it says in one place that he could have literally called on a legion of angels that could have got him down. But he said, no, no, no. I'm staying here because I'm going to live. I live now. I'm going to die for the sins of humanity. There's another breath. If you go back in time, at the be- there's a beginning breath. If you go back to Genesis chapter 2, we have what we call Adam and Eve. Remember, the, he's called the first Adam in the New Testament. See, Adam was basically an adobe construction because it says that God made him out of the dust, the, dust, the ground of the earth. Genesis 2, 7 says, And the Lord formed the man out of the dust from the ground. He breathed the breath of life into his nostrils. And that's when he became a living being. See, man's original creation was only completed by this act of God breathing into his nostrils. Now, what happened with Adam after that? Well, you you fast forward to chapter 3. God had had given him some directives, and he determines, you know what, I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to do my own thing. I know God, good ideas, but I want to do what I want to do. And so he ends up disobeying. And what did that do? Well, that caused this thing called sin to enter into the into the life of human beings and into humanity. I mean, you get up in the morning and you read the newspaper or you look at the news and you can see the play out of that taking place, can't you? I mean, we we live in a broken world. And even some of us in this room have maybe some significantly broken lives that are often centered around sin 
in this world. But the New Testament tells us, especially 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that Jesus came as the last Adam. We saw the first Adam. He blew it, messed it up. Now it says Jesus comes as the last Adam, a perfect man who wouldn't fail, but he would simply follow the will and the ways of his heavenly Father. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin... There's a payment that has to be exacted because of our sin. This is that Jesus comes because the wages of sin is death. There's a free gift that we can receive from God that is eternal life. So Jesus paid our, our debt. He paid those wages for us. He gave us life. He experienced the effects of humiliation, pain, and sorrow and our sin on the cross. Why? Well, so that we could have life. But how does, how does God do that with us? Well, here's that most significant event that I believe that took place on the evening of the resurrection that nobody ever talks about. Where we see the recreation, we see new creation come because of the life of Jesus Christ. It says there in chapter 20, verse 22, and Jesus breathed on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. See, God breathed into Adam. He, he gave him physical life in Genesis chapter 2. But now we come millennia later, and Jesus is meeting with his disciples. He's resurrected from the dead. He is now moving everybody from the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, into the New Covenant. Remember what he said in John chapter 15 through 17? He said that there's going to have to be, i got to go. I got to go back to heaven so that this person, the Holy Spirit, can come and reside in you. That's literally what happens. It's not Jesus that lives in us. We follow Jesus, but it's the Holy Spirit of the triune God that comes, lives within us to be a counselor, a guide, a helper, a convictor. So God breathed into Adam to give him physical life, but now we see Jesus, God, man, breathes into his followers, giving him new spiritual life, changing the course of history with a new covenant. Now, hear me, friends, I say this with great respect, but you, you really don't have life until you've had the breath, the Spirit of God reside in you. Jesus said this, remember when Lazarus died, Jesus comes to save him. He's talking to Mary and Martha, and they're distraught and would say, well, but Lord, if you would have just come, everything would have been fine. He wouldn't have died. Jesus looks at her and he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live. And even if he dies, he will live because he's the resurrection. We get to be resurrected to new life too. But here's the deal. See, all of us in this room right now, we're breathing. But Jesus in that passage kind of goes on to say that the truth is, is you can be fully alive in this life, but yet be fully dead. That if you don't have the life of God that has breathed His Spirit in you, you are a short timer. And there is no eternal hope if that hasn't happened. And that's the reality of what Jesus does here. The moment Jesus breathes on us is the moment we forever get to live in eternal destiny with Him. But how does that happen? It happens one way. We choose to follow Jesus Christ. And at the point that you make the determination to say, I'm going to follow Jesus Christ, guess what? Whew. 
He breathes new life. He breathes his spirit in you. I have a friend who has some breathing issues and difficulties. Sometimes that breathing can become very labored. You know, we don't really think that much about our breath or our breathing until either you struggle with it, something comes up, whether it's a sickness or a cold or asthma or whatever, or you're around somebody that really struggles with their breath and you go, wow, this is a big deal. Um, people that get in significant trouble with their breathing, they have a lot of apparatuses they got to deal with. Well, you got this. You know what this is? This is called a nebulizer. So what you do is you put some albuterol in it, in, in this little thing here, and you plug it in, and you just breathe. And what it does, it begins to open up your lung passages. In the morning, a person with significant breathing issues is going to get up, and they're going to take two shots of this. It's called Dolera, two shots before they go to bed at night. Who knows what it does, but it does something, you know? And here's this thing called albuterol in this little tube. So, like, they call it the rescuer. So, like, all of a sudden, you start struggling with your breathing. You take a couple of shots of this, and it begins to open it up. Very helpful. Then you got some, you got Spiriva. You know, you throw that in a couple of times in the morning. It kind of helps take care of everything as well. And then, all, then you got this stuff here. This is called medication, a prescription, and this helps breathe as well. Why do I show you all that? Because you know what? If you, have, if you have a difficult time breathing, all this stuff becomes very important. But the problem with it is this, is it sometimes can mask things, other things that are going on. Sometimes it's really short-term relief stuff. It doesn't really take care of the issue. It just kind of helps mask and give relief from the problem. We kind of live that way, friends. See, we breathe in oxygen, and then we breathe out carbon dioxide. We inhale stuff from the out, and then we exhale from the in. When we talk about the breath of God, we want to be able to inhale the life of Christ, all that he has for us. And in the process of inhaling the life of Christ and the Spirit of God, we begin to exhale the things that reside within us. Because that's what the Bible says in Matthew 7, that it's not what comes out from the outside, it's what's already in us. It's all those things that we do. Because some of us, well, we have trouble with life. We can turn to porn. We can turn to overeating. We can turn to overdrinking. We can turn to drugs. We can turn to lust. We can turn to lying. We can turn to just a lot of different things to do what? to try and mask some of the deeper issues in our life. But all they do is mask. They never get to the systemic issue. That's why it's so critical that we take in and we breathe in the breath, the spirit, the life of God. There's a passage, and there's a number of passages in the Old Testament. There's a couple more passages in the New Testament that just talk about the breath of God. It was prophesied in the book of Job. It was spoken about in the book of Ezekiel. We sung the song earlier about how God is going to breathe life into dead bodies, dead souls, dead people, and give this resurrection power that we talk about and we celebrate today. And that's what this day is all about, friends. Every one of us need a breath, a fresh breath start breath. 
See, the Easter narrative is about Jesus' last breath on the cross. And then he gets this new breath from the Father as he's resurrected on Easter. Why? To secure a future for you and I. And then there comes this significant point where he says, I want to give breath to you. That's the story of Easter. You know what? For some of us here today, possibly some of us have been separated from God. This can be today where you get your first breath, where you're no longer separated from God, but you become, take your first breath to be a follower of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, behold, he becomes a new creation. Old things passed away. Those things are going to be exhaled. New things come. We take in the life of God. But how does that happen? It all starts with a choice. Every one of us has to make that decision. It doesn't just happen. Maybe you're here today. Maybe you sense God saying to you, I need that. I, I need something. I got to quit masking my life. I got to receive the life of the God and his spirit. But maybe some of us are skeptics. And you just need the breath of faith in your life. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, as he's doing this exegesis of what the resurrection means for people. He's talking about all the people, the eyewitnesses that experienced the presence of Christ. Eyewitnesses to the resurrection. And then he goes on to say in his polemic about, you, about believing, he says, listen, if it isn't true, I'm a liar. Every preacher's a liar. If it's not true, we of all people are to be pitied. And that's really true. Because the resurrection is the hinge of Christianity. If that's not true, nothing matters. But maybe some of you here are skeptics. You're kind of unsure. You've heard about it and there's some lingering doubts. You're here today because there's, you know, a bunch of heel marks coming in from the parking lot. You know, you, you, know, you want to make somebody happy and they drug you in here. Easter's for you. Because Jesus spoke to a doubter. Easter's for you. Because God wants to reveal himself. These disciples are up in the upper room. They're hopeless. And Jesus comes and he says, see, feel, touch, hear, know. There's a movie in the theaters right now. Because if some of you, what I find is people who are skeptics, people who doubt. Some pursue it. But some, I ask them, well, have you ever really studied? Have you ever really done major research? Ah, no, you know, I heard, you know, I heard Dawkins talk about it, and he sounded pretty intelligent, so I don't believe in the resurrection or Jesus Christ or Christianity or whatever. And I always feel bad for them because, you know, they're just taking somebody else's word. They really haven't researched it. That's kind of, to me, that's kind of like intellectual, a lack of intellectual integrity. And for some of you today, maybe your next step as a skeptic would simply be that, to do what? Uh, to start a journey of investigation. In the theaters right now, there's a guy that did that. His name is Lee Strobel. The movie that's playing in theaters across the country is called The Case for Christ. It's his story. It was back in the 1980s. He was an investigative reporter for the Chicago Tribune, an award-winning investigative reporter. And they were in a restaurant, and his daughter started choking, and uh, there was a gal there, a nurse that went, that came and helped him. And, and it was such a significant event that it really spoke to the wife that she thought it was kind of a, an appointment with, with a divine moment. And so this person, this nurse that helped him, talked to her and invited her to church. 
Well, Lee Strobel was an atheist. He didn't believe anything in the Bible. He basically looked at Christians and he felt like, you know what, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're fuzzy-minded. They're, you know, they're, they're kind of soft-hearted people. They're well-meaning but very deceived folks. That's how he saw them, as a full-blown atheist. Well, well, then his wife goes to church, and she becomes a Christ follower. He's not happy about that because, see, him and his wife, they were kind of these party animals together. They just enjoyed life and did whatever they want. And all of a sudden, that was going to change. So it began to bring some tension into their marriage and their home and in their relationship. And he's trying to figure out what's going on because he felt like his marriage was now kind of a bait and switch. But through all of it, there's two things that he couldn't answer for. Her increasing joy and love quotient through the whole process. And so finally he said, you know what? I'm an investigative reporter. I need to investigate this. So he started going to church, but he'd sit in the back row with a pen and a yellow legal pad so that if anyone saw him, they would think he was doing an investigative report on the church, not simply going for his own benefit or uh, personal whatever. But as he focused on Christianity and Jesus, what really got him was this whole thing that we celebrate today, the resurrection. And he began to pursue a study of the resurrection like he would any other kind of story or scandal or topic that he covered. And it took him almost two years to go through this. And as a skeptic, here was his biggest problem that he tried to work through. As he began to do his research, he couldn't get away from this issue. Jesus spent three years with his disciples that were his closest followers and he poured his life into. When, they, when, when he was crucified, what did they do? All but one of them ran and one... One betrayed him, and all but one other ran and hid at his crucifixion. But, but, but then what happened, the thing that he couldn't answer for, is they were transformed. They moved from being these scared, running away disciples to bold, outspoken Christ followers. You don't do that when you're deluded by a lie or some kind of a crazy man. So, so what happened, these disciples, all of a sudden, they are willing to face imprisonment. They're willing to suffer death as martyrs, which all did but one, and there's historical documentation to that. Would they do that for what they knew was a lie? And he couldn't, he couldn't justify those, that thinking. Now, some of you that are skeptics, you would go, well, sure, a lot of people die for a lie. I mean, look at Jim Jones. Over 900 people drank the Kool-Aid with him. Some of you go, oh, yeah, I remember David Koresh back in Texas. I mean, you know what? They just all, they, you know, they burned in that home with him. But here's the difference. Their legacy of lunacy ends with them. It didn't continue for millennia. 2,000 years later, we're still celebrating and people are still responding to this thing called Jesus Christ and the resurrection. No one dies for a metaphor. No one dies for a lie 2,000 years later. What happened to Lee Strobel? He come to Christ. 21 months later, he ended up with all these yellow legal pads that he's done all of his research on, and he bends on his knee before a blood-stained cross in an empty tomb. And guess what happens? He decides to follow Jesus Christ, and guess what? Whew. 
the breath of God makes him new, makes him alive. Maybe that's you today. Maybe that's where you need to go. There's also the breath of freedom that we need in our lives. John 8.36 says this, Therefore, if the Son sets you free, you will really be free. Guilt is probably the number one thing and number one destroyer of happiness. It can cause us physical illness and it's a source of stress. And I can't tell you how many people I know that deal with guilt. I had the privilege of praying with a good friend on Friday. And I looked at him. I was just talking to him and it just seemed like he was a little, little off. And I said, how's it going, friend? What's going on? And he goes, well, you know, man, I'm really I'm just struggling in this area. And, and, and what, what's really bothering me, it just makes me feel so guilty. And I just said, listen, Jesus doesn't want you to. He wants you to change. But he didn't come to produce guilt. Conviction, yes. And I just got to speak into his life and hopefully pray that he would be just set free from that. Because that's what Jesus comes to do, loved ones. He wants to free us from the stuff that we use to mask all of the things in our life. He comes to do that. See, there's two words in the Bible. There's, there's grace and there's mercy. You're going to hear a great song in a few minutes about the mercy of God. But see, grace is simply this. Is that this is the story of Good Friday. Because he died on the cross, we get to experience forgiveness and this breath of fresh life because of his grace. And that's simply us getting what we don't deserve. We don't deserve this new life in Jesus Christ. We don't deserve to live without having to pay the debt that he paid for us. But that's grace, getting what we don't deserve. And here's mercy, getting what we do deserve. Excuse me, not getting what we do deserve. Both of those are kind of the bookends of what happened on the cross. I love it. It was years ago, some years ago, I was I was heading up north toward Napa to, um, we were setting up a men's retreat and I was coming back with a couple of friends that we had set it up and I was driving in this SUV, I borrowed it from, uh, actually it's one of those guys I think, I can't remember whose it was, but I'm driving it. Well, you know when you're in an SUV, I'm used to these kind of small cars close to the ground. Well, I'm in this SUV and I'm just driving and driving and looking around and, you know, and talking and all of a sudden there's this... Uh, uh, sheriff or highway patrol, I couldn't remember what it was, coming this way. And I saw him, and I'm thinking, no problem. And I'm going, all of a sudden, they do this U-turn. I don't think anything of it. All of a sudden, this, the lights are on behind me. And I'm going, whoa. I pull over, and here comes this uh, pretty little officer. And so I thought I could charm her. And... Uh, <laughs> You know, kind of just, hey, how's it going? Oh, and I, this is the truth. I wasn't speeding. I wasn't in a hurry. I just didn't know how fast I was. I was in a big SUV, you know. I'm used to little cars. And so she wasn't having anything of niceness or anything. She just says, well, you're going this fast, and you're doing this. And she wasn't very nice at all to me. And um, I just kept smiling. So she goes back, and she gets into her car, and I'm sure she was writing a ticket. And I'm thinking, ah, great, you know. And it's kind of embarrassing. I'm with a couple of guys from the church, and I'm getting a ticket. So all of a sudden, the guy in the back seat jumps out, runs back. I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, he's going to cause me bigger problems, you know? <laughs> well, he goes back, talks to her for a couple minutes. He comes back, and he sits in the back seat, and he goes, go ahead and go. I go, are you kidding me? I'm not taking off. I'll wait till she tells me to go, you know? <laughs> he goes, no, 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 I've taken care of it. I go, well, how'd you do that? He goes, I got you a professional courtesy. 
I go, what? He goes, yeah. Well, he was like a big dog in the uh, fire, uh, uh, Contra Costa County Fire Department. And so he went out there and said, hey, help this poor preacher. He's in enough trouble. You know, could you let him go? And <laughs> so I take off, and I just, could you stay with me the rest of my life? And... Um, <laughs> You can be my Jesus flesh, you know what I mean? Save me from everything. But I get this profession. You know what that is? That's called mercy. And that's what we get with the living God when he comes. And he says, you're not going to get what you deserve because I want you to follow me and I want to breathe into your life. God's forgiven us, loved ones. And here's the deal. See, we, I, there's people that won't come to this church because they'll say things like, you know what, I just, I'm too much of a foul up. I got to be perfect to come there. No, you don't. I'm here. Every one of us are imperfect, whether you believe it or not. You see, Jesus is less concerned about your perfection than he is your direction, because this is what he knows. Once you make that step, that stand, that decision, that desire to begin to follow him, guess what's going to happen? You'll become perfected, not perfect, but perfected by the perfect one. You can't follow Jesus without changing for the better. And that's his concern. He wants to breathe freedom into your life. The last thing he wants to breathe is a relationship. Notice on your notes there, Romans 8 says this, for you did not receive a spirit of slavery. See, so many people think that God just wants to ball and chain them and tie them up and do's and don'ts. There are some of those in the Bible, but the bottom line is he says, I don't want to make you a slave. I want to give you great freedom. I don't want you to live in fear. And he says this, but you receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we're God's children. And if you're his children, guess what? You're also heirs. You get to receive everything, heirs of God. You're co-heirs with Christ. Whatever Christ has received from the Father, you and me, once we follow Jesus, guess what? We get to do it, get to receive it. I love that. Someone was just telling me before service, oh, you're so blessed. And I thought, it's true. It's because I'm a co-heir with Christ. Adoption. That's the relationship God wants to give you. I want to show you a quick video of Simon, uh, Simone Biles, who is an Olympian. You know, she won a bunch of gold medals in the recent Olympics. And she was on Dancing with the Stars. She was adopted. I'll just watch her story for a moment. This week, we are dancing the Beanie's Waltz. And your story is so powerful that it just shows the emotion. And that's why this week you don't have to play anyone but yourself. My most memorable year is the year 2000 when I was adopted. Growing up, my biological mom was suffering from drug and alcohol abuse and she was in and out of jail. I never had mom to run to, but I do remember always being hungry and afraid. At three years old, I was placed in foster care. Whenever we had visits with my grandpa, I was so excited. That was a person I always wanted to see, like, walk into the foster. I didn't want the kids in foster care. That was my first reaction, just said, send them to me. 
on the flight home, Simone just kept smiling away, smiling away. I just looked at her and I said, you're not gonna steal my heart. She did. I remember them saying, okay, well, you know how you called us grandma, grandpa? You can call us mom and dad now if you want to. I could do that. Yeah, sure, mom, dad. I'm extremely proud of Simone and all that she's accomplished. Yes, she's turned into an amazing woman. You're going back to when you were three years old and thinking, I need help, like help me. My parents saved me. They've set huge examples of how to treat other people and they've been there to support me since day one. There's nothing I can say to them to thank them enough. Even though there's no right words, maybe dance will say it for me. Oh, I've heard a thousand stories of a word they think you're like, but I. Dead of night and you call me Deeper still as you call me Deeper still as you call me Deeper still into love Love, love, you're a good, good father It's who you are It's who you are It's who you are It's who you are, it's who you are, and I'm loved by you. What you might not know is she's a very strong person of faith, Christ follower. Scripture says that we received a spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. That word Abba is, is the most endearing term that you could use for a father. Papa, Daddy, Dada. We have a good, good father. That's what she's talking about. See, like Simone, we live in a world that can be abusive. We live in a world that isn't fair. We live in a world where we have to face things that can tear us apart and break our lives up, just like her. But there's always a good, good father there. And he says, I want to adopt you into a new relationship. Before you were born, friends, long before you were born, God began orchestrating the events of your life. Maybe for some of you, this is the first time you've ever been in church. That's not by accident. God has orchestrated. He's brought you to this place to be able to hear a message of his love and his grace and his mercy and how he cares for you. I'm not talking today about religion. I don't care if you're Catholic, Protestant, Jewish, Buddhist, Baptist, atheist, nothing. This has nothing to do with religion. Religion kind of has a tendency to mess everything up. Here's the question. Do you have a relationship with the living God where you made a decision to follow Jesus Christ? 
Because it's at that point when you make that decision, all of a sudden, he births the spirit of new life in you. See, adoption's a powerful thing. I've had the privilege of having two boys that we adopted. See, it's one thing to have biological children. It's kind of, you know, for most, it's pretty basic. You just have them. You do their thing and you have them. Adoption's a long process. We waited a couple of years, and then finally one day we got this call, September 4th. Hey, you want this boy in Rapid City, South Dakota? Uh, Yeah, no kidding. We'll take him. See, we got to choose him. We got to call. We got to say, yes, we want him. Jesus said it this way in John 15, 16. Ah, you didn't choose me. I chose you. And I'm so thankful for that because when we chose Joel, we didn't know what he looked like. All we knew, he was a boy. We'll take him. That's what God does with you. He looks at you. I, I don't care. I, you know, you're a boy, you're a girl. I'll take you. I'm choosing you. And everybody, loved ones, hear me in this room. You have been chosen. That's why you're here today. People, how do I know I'm really chosen? Because you're here. When you hear a message like this, you can know that you are chosen. And when you're chosen, then you get to respond and reciprocate. Because never forget, adoption's costly. We had no insurance to cover our costs. Our first attorney's office, I mean, he would open, I mean, we knew that if he opened the file, it was $150. This was back in 1983 when I didn't make $150 a year. Not quite, but that's what it felt like. Here's an interesting side. His office was on Greenback Lane in Sacramento. And I always told Trina, every time I had to write a check, I said, we are paying for Greenback Lane. We're paving that thing. We went into pretty significant debt and had to pay for it for years. But it was worth it. It was worth it. What did it cost the father? It cost him his son to die on the cross so he could adopt us. What else did it do? It brought great security to our kids. Our kids have grown up in a great home. they got two parents that love them, and they are secure. When we were going through the legal process with each one of them, we'd have to wait eight months, and then we would stand before a judge, and he would ask us these questions. He'd say, are you committed to making sure to take care of their every need? Are you committed to make sure that if they want to go to college, you will pay for it and get them there? Are you committed to, when you die, that they will, be it, they will be, receive an inheritance? regardless of anything that happens in life. Well, at eight months old, this slobbering little sweet kid, we said, absolutely. When he turned 16, we had different thoughts. (laughs) Because he was kind of a rascal. But he's still in our will. This is what God does. Through the years, there was tough times, but you know what? He was always a Riley. Not by blood, but by name. And by heart. And it's the same thing with our Father, except it is by blood, the blood of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1.11 says this, In Christ we've obtained an inheritance. What's an inheritance? It's grace. It's getting what is not yours, but you receive it due to a relationship. And that's exactly what God gives to every one of us. This good, good Father says, here's your inheritance. You're going to get forgiveness. You're going to enter into my family. You're going to have a new relationship. And guess what? You're going to get to experience eternity in heaven. 
That's a pretty good inheritance, loved ones. But see, heaven's perfect. We're not. There will be no imperfection in heaven. So we have to never forget that we're never going to be perfect enough for it. But what we do is we get to press in. We decide to follow the perfect one, Jesus Christ. And this Easter, I invite you to do that. If you've never made a decision to follow Jesus Christ, today can be your day. Because you've got a good, good father who welcomes you who's paid the price, who wants to give you great security, who wants to give you wonderful freedom in all of your life. But here's the deal. You've got to decide. And once you decide, guess what happens? Oh God, let them feel the breath of God, the power of the Spirit. Go over them. That's my prayer for you today. Maybe some of you have been away strayed. The Father says, you want to come home? I welcome you today. I welcome you today. So, Father, that's your heart. I pray you would speak to our hearts and that, Lord, somehow, for those of us who have strayed, maybe some, Lord, have been skeptics. We've never come or we've never trusted that you're really there. That, Lord, we would respond today to the good, good Father and to the life of Jesus Christ. I ask that. I pray for that in your name today. And if you're here today and you've never done that, I invite you to just simply say, Jesus, I want to receive your forgiveness for my sins and I want to follow you. And that's where it starts. And may the breath of God fill you in Jesus' name.